Yesterday I had a, a, an awesome privilege. It is always a privilege for me to be a part of a major event in people's lives. And yesterday I had the opportunity, we mentioned this last week, Joshua McMillan and Lydia Campbell were married yesterday. And um, I was able to have a small part of that service, uh, got to do that service with her dad who's uh, joining us this morning, Dr. Campbell. And uh, anytime that, that I approach a wedding... Uh, or premarital counseling, or talking to people in general about marriage, you always have this, or I have this difficult moment of trying to figure out how in the world can I truly prepare them for what is to come. As I stood there yesterday, and, and, and they were, you know, the, the groomsmen are lined up, and the bridesmaids are coming down, and, and I'm standing there in the center, and the doors open, and Lydia starts to walk down the aisle, and Barbara starts to play, here comes the bride, and you just wonder, what could I say in this moment to prepare them for what is going to happen in this marriage? Because in reality, the wedding is kind of a fantasy, isn't it? Amen? I mean, you get dressed up and you wear these really good clothes. and I mean, who plans a wardrobe for months, right? For a single event, for a couple of hours. And you, you get everybody that you love there and everybody's excited and happy. And it's just a great moment. I've never been in a wedding where the two people staying there think, I cannot believe we are doing this. Right? It's always an exciting moment. But the wedding is fantasy and the marriage is real. Alright? But as I was standing there, I got to thinking about our own wedding. My wedding. Susan and I. And I thought that I would share with you just a glimpse of that. I actually have a picture. I don't know how well you'll be able to see it. Not very well, but that's alright. It's beautiful, okay? (laughs) Or at least she is. This is July 25th, 1998. Almost 14 years ago. And, you know, we had a funny moment yesterday at the reception. Uh, we were sitting there and, and, and somebody came up to us and said, Wow, is this your first child? Susan obviously is showing that she's pregnant. And uh, Susan and I were there by ourselves. We did our, our, our parents, my parents were in, praise be to God, and kept the kids for a little while. And um, Susan just looked and laughed and goes, No, it's our fourth. And she, they were like, well, you look way too young to have four kids. I thought, you should see our wedding picture, all right? We were children, all right? We were young. And so you think, how in the world could I ever be prepared on that day for what was to come? I mean, if you would have told us in that moment, as we're standing there, about all the trials and tribulations and highs and lows and goods and bads, first of all, it would have scared us to death. And it would have made us rethink what was going on. I mean, if you would have told us that we would deal with the death of loved ones, including grandparents, including Susan's mom. If you would have told us that we would have encountered being told by doctors that we would never have children on our own, and then figuring out we're going to have four. Two boys and two girls, right? Some of y'all didn't know. We found out it's a little girl this week, all right? Somebody, you know, if somebody would have told us that, we'd be like, oh, if he would have told us about moving, we moved every year for the first four years of our marriage. By the time we moved here, we had moved the same number of times as we had been years married. Just house to house, apartment to apartment, and 
you all know this, marriages get so much stronger when you move. <laughs> Amen? Marriages, there are certain things that really build marriages. Moving and remodeling your house. Amen? Somebody was asking about how, how's the church going with the renovations. I said, well, it's good, but renovating a church is kind of like renovating a house. And there are difficulties and decisions that, that go along with that. All right, And so you, you can't prepare people for that. But the truth is, when I look back on my marriage, nothing in my life has been more challenging or rewarding for me. Nothing in my life has developed me more in my relationship with the Lord than my marriage. And so over the next few weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about real marriage. And we're going to talk about what it means to be married and what marriage looks like. Alright? And it's going to be a series. By the way, if you've got your Bibles, turn them to Ephesians chapter 5. If you uh, don't have your Bible, if you've got a smartphone, there, you can look us up on version if you have the app, or even go to the browser and the, the uh, web address is, is there at the bottom of that title screen. And you can follow along in the notes there. But we're going to look over the next few weeks about what it looks like. And, and as I was thinking about this, I, I thought, well, who, who is this series for? What's it about? And truthfully, first of all, the series is for married people. If, if you're a married person here today, I hope that this will apply to you, that you will get something out of this, that you will be reminded of some things in your life. Those of you who are married, either for a short period of time or for longer than you would like to admit, or you've moved past that and you're proud of how long you've been married, if you've discovered that marriage is a challenging day-to-day event, then this is for you. We're going to talk about some practical things. We're going to talk about some things that uh, people realize once they realize the honeymoon is over. All right? And so we're going to be real about it. If you're unmarried here today, either you've never been married, you're too young to have been married, or you've been married and are single again. I want us to look at not so much... This series isn't so much going to be, if you're a husband, do this. If you're a wife, do this. It's going to be more, what is God's picture for what marriage ought to be? And so if you're an unmarried person here today, if you're a youth, if you're even a child, it will be a reminder to you of what it ought to look like when people are married. You know, the truth is, if you look at all the statistics, people are waiting longer to get married than they ever have before in the history of the world. And that gives us a lot longer before marriage to develop our understanding of what marriage might be. And we'll talk about in a minute. That cannot necessarily be a good thing. The longer we have to develop about what marriage ought to be, the higher the expectations are when we walk into it. So this series can be a time to be more mature in your thinking about it, to, to get a vision, to, to not over-desire or dismiss altogether the understanding of marriage. This series is going to be focused on Scripture and the Bible. We're going to talk about some cultural things. We're going to talk about some studies. We'll do that even today. But we're going to be looking at what the Bible says about it. And here's the real reason that I felt led to do a series on marriage. I've been praying about this and felt led to do a series on marriage since last fall at this time. And the Lord has revealed some things even in the last few weeks and and days that, that shows the wisdom and what He put into my life to do here. But one of the main reasons that I want to do that is because in Scripture, marriage is to be about much more than just one man and one woman. 
It is to be a testimony to the world of the love of God for His people. God compares His relationship with the church to that of a husband and a wife. And so this is not just some kind of uh, uh, niche discussion over the next few weeks. It's a very real discussion about a very important topic to the heart and the mind and the kingdom of God. In fact, I came across a quote this week from a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he, uh, some of you know his story, and I've shared part of his story before, but he was a guy that resisted the Nazi army in Germany, moved back to Germany to resist, was a pastor and a theologian. And one of the things that happened is he was engaged while he was imprisoned. And according to the story I read this week, never married because he was killed before he got out of prison. But writing about the concept of marriage in this engagement, this is what he says. The ultimate thing we can say about marriage is that it exists for God's glory. That is, it exists to display God. Marriage is patterned after Christ's covenant relationship to His redeemed people, the church. And therefore, the highest meaning of marriage is to put the covenant relationship of Christ and His church on display. That is why marriage exists. If you are married, that's why you are married. If you hope to be married, that's why you should hope to be married. Staying married, therefore, is not mainly about staying in love. It is about keeping covenant. Therefore, what makes the dissolution of marriage so horrific in God's eyes is not merely that it involves covenant breaking to the spouse, but that it misrepresents Christ and His covenant. Christ will never leave His wife, so nor should you. It's about something much bigger than a single relationship. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5 through most of this series, and we're actually going to start today at verse 1 and 2, and we're not going to get to the marriage codes that come towards the end today. But I want to set the scene for where we are. And one of the things that we must do if we're going to break free from the culture's formula on marriage is we must recognize what that formula is. You see, most of us don't really have a deep discussion or thought before we get married about what marriage ought to be. We don't give instruction to, our, to each other. We don't talk through these things. You don't have people sit down and give you a course. Most of what we learn is, I think, or well, what happened to us. And so we are bombarded daily with people singing along to the songs on the radio, watching television, listening to uh, talk shows, reading books, uh, following celebrity gossip sites. Right? You, you walk through the aisle at, at uh, Kroger or Publix and... All it's about is who's with who and who's not with who anymore and who's with who but really likes who. You know, it's all that. And what happens is we begin to develop this understanding of what the culture thinks of love and marriage. And these are the four steps to what they tell us love and marriage is all about. First of all, we are to find the right person. Right? Anybody know what happens tonight? Kind of big cultural event. What's happening tonight? The Oscars, right? 
Oscars are happening tonight, and one of the things that Oscar celebrates is all of the movies that have been out. And, and most of the movies now that are, are really up for those kind of best picture aren't necessarily the love, romantic comedy, love stories. But if you watch any of those romantic comedies, or if you watch any of the romance movies, they're all about finding the right person, no matter what obstacles might be in your way. You realize that one of the biggest movies of last year was a story about a girl that falls in love with a vampire. Right? And even though the relationship may lead to eternal vampireness, no matter the obstacles, when you find the right person, that's all that really matters. Team Edward wins. I think. I haven't seen the movies or read the books, but that's what I hear, alright? Think about movies that you've seen where they just... They, they, they're looking for Mr. Right. Here's what often happens in Hollywood movies. They are with Mr. Wrong about to go down the aisle and suddenly what happens? Mr. Right appears. Where have you been all my life? Why did you wait till the very last moment to show up? Well, that's why we have two hours to figure out, alright? So the culture says, find Mr. Right. It just happens. You just kind of fall into it. The unknown, it's mystical, it's magic. When it happens, you'll just know it. Well, how will you know? You'll just know. Once you find Mr. Right, the next important step is you must fall in love. Right? You can fall in love with anybody. You can fall in love with somebody sending emails over the internet. You can fall in love with a stranger. You can fall in love through, it used to be through notes that were sent in the mail, then it became email, now it's text messages. What? You can fall in love, however. And it's not based on anything except the chemistry you feel about the other person. This has led to what one writer has called the eternal search for a soulmate. I interviewed a lot of guys that are waiting to get married until they're in their late 20s, early 30s. And they asked them, why haven't they got married yet? And an interesting answer kept coming up. Uh, One of the answers that kept coming up is, I just haven't found the right person or that one match for me. And they kept talking about this idea that, that, well, how do you know it's going to be right? And this is, by the way, this is just how guys think, but it's... Uh, that's just how guys think. They say, well, what, what is it going to look like? Well, it'll be the person that won't me, make me change at all. Any of you married guys here changed any since you got married? You better raise your hand, all right? Or there'll be lunchtime discussion going on, all right? That's not... They say that if you're... This is what one person said. If you're compatible... Don't you love that word? If you're compatible it will mean you won't have to change anything. In the Greek language, we call that a bunch of baloney. Alright? So you don't fall in love. In fact, uh, there was a scholar who wrote this. I I love this. He he says, um, we always marry the wrong person. We never know who we marry. We just think we know who we marry. Any women got an amen for that? All right. How many of you married couples out there discovered something you didn't know about your spouse after you got married? There you go. Some hands went way up. All right. How many of you, and I want to speak, this is brutally honest, all right. How many of you discovered something that you didn't necessarily like, knew about your partner after you got married? 
All right, it's okay. We're in a safe place here. Okay? You don't, you don't marry the right person. That's not what, how things happen. Here's the third thing. Once you find the right person, you fall in love, you fix your hopes and dreams on this person for all future fulfillment. I can't live if living is without you. <laughs> Amen, right? Isn't that what love songs teach us? If you, I don't have you, I can't live any longer. And so you fix your hopes and your dreams for future fulfillment. And guess what? If you find the right person, if you fall in love, and if after 18 months you have unmet expectations and they're not bringing you all future fulfillment, guess what you do? You start over with number one. If you fail, you go back and repeat steps one, two, and three. If you don't find future fulfillment in that person, guess what happens? You just start over again and you say, I must not have found the right person. I know we've been married for ten years and have got two kids and I know that we committed ourselves one another in that marriage ceremony, but I just must not have found the right person. Or, he was the right person then, but he's not the right person now. Ephesians chapter 5. I told you we're going to be focused on the Bible and we haven't even read any yet. But we're going, alright? You see, the problem is, the reason this is so important is because we have been reaping the consequences of the culture's formula for marriage for years. There's an interesting study out there. Um, I was actually in college. I read the book in a class that I took at Union about the effects of divorce on children 10 15, 20, 25 years later. And what they were looking at was not just how... They, they took a child who was nine when they, his parents got a divorce and they interviewed him every two or three years to see how it impacted them. You know the interesting thing they discovered? is 20, 30 years later, the impacts of the divorce were still mighty big. In fact they began to ask them some strange questions about what they felt like was the result of the divorce. And some of them, these are some of the responses. Part of me is always waiting for disaster to strike. I realize that I live in dread that something terrible will change my life like it did when I was eight years old. Other statements from people who went through that 25 years after they did... I don't know if I believe in marriage because of what happened with my parents. I get close to someone and the same thing always happens. I'm scared to death to make a commitment. I don't know how marriage is supposed to work, but I know I grew up in a family where it didn't. I want intimacy and I long to be connected with someone else. But my heart got ripped out and no one helped me cope with the pain. They say I'd get over it. Well, I'm not over it. And my lack of relationships... Prove it. We have been reaping the consequences of the culture's idea for far too long. And it's not just in divorces. It's in the relationships of moms and dads who aren't connected to each other at all, but decide to stay together for the kids. Instead of looking at what God's plan is for the whole deal. This morning, I'm going to ask you, 
to follow God's formula. It starts in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. It says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as the Messiah also loved us and gave Himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. And walk in love as the Messiah also loved us and gave Himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. There are four steps to God's plan, just as there are four steps to the culture's identity, but they're radically different in the focus of each one of the steps in the plan. And they flow directly out of Ephesians chapter 5 and how we ought to live. And the reality is, I mentioned this in the context of marriage, but this, this, especially the first two of these four, are especially important for all of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ. Whether we are married, whether we are moving towards that, or whether we are not in a relationship at all, these are important steps for us to take to follow what God intends for us. And the first step is not to find the right person, but it's to become the right person. You see, where Ephesians chapter 5 is, is in the middle of the book of Ephesians, obviously. And the first three chapters of Ephesians tell us all that God has done for us. It lays out who He is, uh, who He is, what He has done, how He has seated us with Him, how He has given us power and authority and glory on par with Him and His servants, because we are His dearly loved children. And then it says that we are to be imitators of that. The word there literally kind of means to mimic. Alright? We were riding in the van a couple of days ago, and Maddie started repeating everything Eli said. You know, you know that game, right? Stop talking like me. Stop talking like me. Would you quit? Would you quit? Over and over. You know, anybody ever had children or grandchildren play that game? Alright? It is called the most annoying game in the history of the world. Alright? But the idea there is that whatever Eli said, now he wasn't doing full sentences, he was just doing words. Stop it, stop it, quit, quit, back and forth. The idea was that Maddie was just simply mimicking what Eli was doing. Well, this word here, to be an imitator of God, means to literally mimic, be just like God and what He did for us. Now, it reminds us that we are to be imitators of God because of the fact that He has called us His own and we are His dearly loved children. Now, it's going to lay out, really the whole of chapter 5 and chapter 6 is laying out what it means to imitate God. But one of the things it definitely means is that we begin to live our lives in a way that reflects who He is. Precisely in the way that He gave His life for us because of His love. In fact, you can look back at the end of chapter 4. If you've got your Bibles open, it says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children. The idea is because of the forgiveness and the love that Christ has given us, then we ought to live kind and tender-hearted and forgiving lives. Key here to us imitating God is being secure in who we are. Let me just say this. 
One of the most important things that can happen to benefit your marriage and your relationships is this. Is you becoming completely and fully confident in who you are in Jesus. Understanding the love and the dedication and the sacrifice that He gave for you. That nothing else in your life will bring you more value than Jesus Christ dying on the cross for your sins. No relationship, no man, no woman, no purchase, no job, no family can ever give you more value than the God of the universe sending His own Son to die for your sins. And until you are completely confident in that, you will be continually looking for your value in things that will not provide what you need. And so the first thing that we have to do as dearly loved children, understanding our place in life in the understanding of God's scheme, is we begin to imitate Him in the way we treat one another, and more specifically in marriage, in the way that you treat your spouse. Do you, in your marriage, see loving your spouse as an opportunity to worship God? Do you, in your marriage, see the opportunity to serve your spouse as an opportunity to worship God, to imitate God? What it means here literally, and this is for all of life, if you're not married, how do you treat people in your life, your friends, your neighbors, your classmates, your co-workers, how do you treat them? Being secure in who you are allows us to love freely. One of the biggest hang-ups that can happen oftentimes in any kind of relationship is when people are unforgiving. And when you're secure in who you are in Christ, it's okay to forgive because you don't have to feel like you've got to hold that over anybody. Sometimes people will say, you mean I need to forgive them and let them, let them just, just act like it didn't happen? The truth is, What Scripture says is that's what Christ has done for us. And there are times in your relationships when you need to just forgive. Well, what if they do it again? That's not your responsibility. You need to forgive. You need to love. You need to imitate God in that way. Now, in case we think, well, that's not... When he says imitate God, he means be holy, and he means righteous, and he means be, you know, to bring the... the, um, Judgments of God to bear on a sinful world. That's what it means there. In case we forget or think that's what happens, verse 2 clarifies for us. By the way, in these two verses, there are only two commands. One is to be imitator of God, and the second comes at the start of verse 2. And walk in love, as the Messiah also loved us and gave Himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. What it says there is that not only do we become the right person, the second thing is we've got to walk in love. Now, that biblical word walk just basically means in your everyday walking around, day-to-day life, you live it with sacrificial commitment to other people. When we talk about walking in love, what we're talking about there is living our lives in such a way That we are deliberately, intentionally, honestly, and painfully giving up the idea of self-preservation for somebody else's good. 
Someone has described what it would mean in a marriage relationship this way. Giving what the other person needs most when they least deserve it because that's how God treats you. Now think about that for a minute. Giving what the other person needs the most when they least deserve it. It's easy to give them what they need when they most deserve it. Amen? Amen? It's not easy to do that when they least deserve it. Now, here's the second thing about that little phrase. Notice it says, it doesn't say give them what they want. It says give them what they need. Now, here's where some of you are going to be real critical because you'll say, I know exactly what they need. Amen? And what you mean is, I have got the prescription and it is not what they want, but it is what they need. This is where you have to go under God's guidance. Sacrificial committal love is doing for the other person even if nothing is guaranteed in return. You know, what's interesting, I mentioned the wedding and the marriage difference. You know, when the couple stands there on the wedding day and they give those vows for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, for better, for worse, till nothing but death shall separate us. When they give those phrases up there, they, they, I, don't, I think they actually mean them, right? I don't think they're lying. I don't think they're going, <laughs> never. All right, we're not doing that. But it's amazing how quickly in a marriage you can start keeping score. Well, I always and they never. Well, I always and she won't. Well, I did this and he didn't. It's amazing how easy it is to keep score. One of my favorite verses in Scripture, I've shared it with you many times, is in 1 Corinthians 13, and it says, Love keeps no record of wrongs. A strong marriage is one where sacrificial commitment from both sides is continually on display. Here's the third thing in God's formula. Fix your hope on God and seek to please Him no matter where you are in life, but especially in your relationships. Seek to please Him. Notice what it says at the end of verse 1 and 2 here. It says, Walk in love as the Messiah also loved us and gave Himself for us. And then it tells us what that love was, what Christ was doing. It says it was a sacrifice and a fragrant offering to God. Now here's the thing that I think is so interesting about that. It tells us to be the same as that, to give ourselves up, to give sacrificially, this sacrificial commitment. And it says that Christ doing that was Christ offering worship unto God and praise unto Him. That it wasn't just Christ dying on the cross, but that it was an act of profound and deep worship unto the Father because of the sacrificial commitment that was there. And what it means for us in relationships or in life in general is that when we give sacrifice, Officially in a committed relationship, when we love people without thinking about the return, we are in fact giving praise and honor and glory unto our Creator and to God alone. And so husband, when you walk into the kitchen and you wash the dishes, even though it is your least favorite thing in the world to do, because you know that's what your wife needs at the moment, washing the dishes becomes an act of worship in that time. We don't need to be too proud of ourselves because, let's be honest, washing dishes is nowhere near the sacrifice Christ gave. Amen? 
But it's in that sacrificial commitment to your spouse that you honor the Lord. Here's the thing that you notice about God's formula as opposed to Hollywood or culture's formula. What you notice is those three steps are all outwardly focused. The other steps were all inward, right? Find the right person for me, that compliments me, that completes me. Fall in love because I want those emotions and then find my fulfillment in them. God's plan is decidedly other-centered. I'm going to become the person God intends so that I can be a blessing to the Lord. I'm going to walk in love and I'm going to put my hope and my trust in Him. And here's the truth. Every one of us in this room is going to fail at this at some point. I'm not going to ask if anybody in here has never had a problem at all in their marriage because if you've been married more than five minutes, you have. And some of you wouldn't raise your hand just because you don't raise hands in a Baptist church. And I don't want you to lie this morning, alright? But what happens when we fail? What happens when we realize as we look in that mirror getting ready in the morning that we said something last night we should have never said or we did something we should have never done? What do we do then? Here's the thing where they're the same. The fourth step is if you fail, you go back and repeat steps one, two, and three. Go back to the Word of God and ask, Lord, where have I have need to walk in love more decidedly for my spouse? And how can I focus my attention and my hope on You? Over the next few weeks, we're going to investigate more of what Ephesians chapter 5 kind of says about what marriage looks like, but none of that will ever matter if your relationship with the Lord is not where it needs to be.